to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read our, read our text together, and then we'll sing this song, and um, <clears throat> Matthew chapter number 2. Why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'll begin with verse number 1, and we'll read responsively through verse number 11. Verse 11 is going to be our text verse. So I begin with verse 1, you join me in verse 2, and so forth. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people. Isn't that interesting that, sorry, uh, cut you off there, but isn't that interesting that Herod's men, the scribes, the Pharisees, they could take him right to the scripture, but they weren't looking for him. That's sad, isn't it? They had that much knowledge, but didn't have enough sense to look for the Christ child. Verse 7, I pick back up. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And together on verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, This, of course, is the the wise men who came with their three gifts. And um, I want you to notice middle of verse number 11, the phrase, which will be uh, the text uh, for this morning's message and title. The Bible said uh, that they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. These were men of significance, men of position, uh, likely royalty. And here they are bowing to another. Those probably who were used to folks bowing to them, now they bow to another. To whom do they bow? A A little child. A little child. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. No ordinary child. But God in flesh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we'll speak in a moment on the subject. They fell down and worshipped him. Remain standing. And Brother Schwartz, come lead us in number 140 as we sing this song. And after that, we'll have our offering. <clears throat> 
Bibles again, turn to Matthew 2. You got it there still? Matthew chapter number 2, and we'll look at that verse once more as we jump right into the message. Matthew in chapter number 2, you can remain seated, and I'm reading uh, for you there. Uh, verse number 11 of Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 11. And the Bible tells us, When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary and his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want to speak to you on that little phrase, they fell down and worshipped him. Heavenly Father, please through the power of the Holy Spirit, fill me, use me, speak through me. Uh, Lord, uh, and may we uh, not only let me be a spirit-filled messenger, but let us all be spirit-filled hearers, ready and willing to yield to thy spirit as you speak to us. Make us hungry to do as did the wise men, to also fall before the Lord of glory and worship him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Several years ago, I uh, spoke to our students at the school chapel some years ago, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, and I had found some research that was quite intriguing. And uh, it uh, encouraged me to do a little, dig a little deeper in the Word of God. As uh, you know, you know the uh, science is always uh, true science, true science. And again, let's go back to junior high school. Uh, true science is observation, experimentation, form a hypothesis, test your hypothesis, and then come up with a theory. Amen. Science is not give it enough years and you can say whatever you want to say. That's not science. Science is observable. This isn't the message, but I think I'll stay here. Amen. Science is observable. Amen? Amen. All right. Anyway, so, uh, but, uh, but, it, but it provoked me, and I dug a little deeper and, and taught some things to our young people. Might be time to teach them again. <laughs> but this is the study that uh, helped to spark uh, my interest. Came out of Columbus, Ohio. Listen to this. <clears throat> uh, sitting up straight in your chair isn't just for good posture. Shall we bow our heads while we all sit up straight? Uh, <laughs> listen to this. It also gives you more confidence in your own thoughts, according to a new study. Researchers found that people who were told to sit up straight were more likely to believe thoughts they wrote down while in that posture concerning whether they were qualified for a job. On the other hand, those who were slumped over their desks were less likely to accept these written down feelings about their own qualifications. The results show how our body posture can affect not only what others think about us, but also what we think about of our, ourselves. Most of us were taught that sitting up straight gives a good impression to other people, but it turns out that our posture can also affect how we think about ourselves. If you sit up straight, you end up convincing yourself by the posture you're in. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Amen? I know that won't start revival or anything, but I think it's interesting. And the study goes on to show that when, when your posture, you, you remember when you were taking a test as a kid, and, 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 uh, and, 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 and you write an answer down, then you look at it, Ah, oh. and you erase it, 
Then you write the same answer again. Then you erase it and write a different answer. And they grade your test and you got it wrong. And the first answer was right. Remember those days? Remember those days? Do you know what? what? This is crazy. I mean, this is, this is observable, you know. Science. Anyway, when you sit up straight, you're less likely to second guess your first answer. Who thought? <laughs> I mean, now, you say, what does that have to do anything? I'm not sure. I'm trying to come up with it. That's why I'm stalling. No. <laughs> it has a lot to do. Uh, we call it body language. We call it body language, right? Let's consider some of these verses. The Bible says uh, in 2 Chronicles 29, 6, that idolaters turn their faces away and turn their backs. The Bible says about the arrogant uh, in Exodus 32, 9 and 33, 3, that they are stiff-necked. Psalm 95, 6 says the humble bow down. And the desperate, desperate prostrate themselves and the hostile rise up against others and the wicked lie in wait and the dedicated looked toward the temple. Now there's just a few examples of body language in the Bible. That's not the primary uh, thing that I want to teach you this morning, but it's a great way to come into what will be a biblical study in the word of God this morning. I'm going to use a lot of scripture, and I would welcome you either just to, if you, if you're, uh, just to listen carefully, if you would, and occasionally I'll say, turn to this passage. Otherwise, I would like for you just to listen very carefully, and if you want to get all the references down, I'll give you a picture of my notes when we're done, and you can have all the references. But um, the Bible says of these wise men, now think about this. These wise men, these were men of means, obviously, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were men, these were wealthy men. These were learned men who, through the writings of the Old Testament prophets, had uh, understood uh, uh, the timing and so forth. Uh, uh, Daniel was probably one of their intellectual forefathers, if you will. And uh, through their study, they came to know and understand the significance of what was happening, and the Lord confirmed that with the star of Bethlehem, as we call it, and here they come looking for the Christ child, and when they find him, they don't say, howdy. Nothing wrong with saying howdy. But how did they respond? They fell down. They fell down. When they first lit upon the little baby, They fell down and they worshiped. Worship is adoration. Worship is expressing your love. Deep devotion. Question. When's the last time you fell down and worshiped? I don't think he deserved that just as a little baby. From those wise men. I believe he deserves it from us all. Amen. The New Testament tells us that one day. Even those who have rejected him. Even those who, who uh, 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 have hated him. And have set them. Kings of the earth have set themselves against him. The Bible says. But one day every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. That means all the ancient kings of the past will bow and all of the pharaohs will bow. All of the, uh, 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 the Roman emperors will bow. Nero 
who cut off uh, Paul's head uh, uh, and made him a martyr, uh, his knee will bow. Herod, uh, who had uh, John the Baptist uh, beheaded and uh, imprisoned Peter, uh, and uh, his knee will bow. And every every God-defying, Bible-defying politician, governor, king, ruler, prince, uh, a monarch that ever lived and ever will live one day, we with them will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He deserves that now, doesn't he? Can I take you on a little journey through the scripture? We find in Deuteronomy 9.18 that Moses fell down before the Lord. We find in Deuteronomy 9.25 that he fell down before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights as at the first. On two occasions, and I believe if you put all these scriptures together, I believe on two occasions Moses went up into the mountain, 40 days of prayer and fasting and fellowship with God. God revealed himself. He comes down again and, uh, and uh, the tablets are broken and uh, God sends him back up into the mountain for another 40 days. I believe Moses fasted a total of 80 days if I understand the scripture correctly. I believe I do. 40 days more, and he fell down before the Lord. The Bible says, and this is remarkable, Job in one day lost all of his business holdings. He was a fantastically wealthy man, the greatest man in the East, and, uh, and, and he lost all of his business holdings, lost all of his, uh, 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 his, financial, uh, his, uh, his, his financial position was literally wiped out in a single day. He lost his ten children. Uh, in one day, a storm came. They were together in a home having a meal uh, and together. And, and, uh, and, and a storm came to four corners of the house. Seems to me that some kind of a, a, a tornado came. And, uh, and the four corners of the house fell in upon itself. And all of them were killed. One only escaped with his life to tell uh, the, the story. A servant escaped with his life to tell the story. Job then goes on and he loses his health. And then his response after all of this then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped this is the man who said in response to all that devastation the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away blessed be the name of the Lord in Matthew 5, 33, we spoke of her last Sunday morning. The woman touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the Bible said, the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him. In Luke 8 and verse 41, on that same, in that same passage, Jairus came and he a ruler of the synagogue and he fell down at Jesus feet and besought him that he would come into his house we get to the revelation in the 22nd chapter in verse 8 and John the revelator saw these things and heard them and when I heard I had heard and seen I fell down to worship that was his response to the the great revelation that was given, a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
given to John. Not a revelation of John, a revelation of Jesus given to John. And in the final chapter of the Bible, his response to this revelation, he fell down and he worshiped. I think that little, uh, those two little words, fell down, uh, could uh, denote, uh, first of all, worship, as the text tells us. Adoration would be another word. Again, I ask you, dear church family, when's the last time you alone with God somewhere fell down? I mean, fell down. I mean, you had to get to God and you had to get in his presence and you became so overwhelmed with the reality of who he is and and how worthy he is that you fell down uh, and you worship and you adored the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. I find another position in the Bible. In Genesis 17, in verse number 3, the Bible says, And Abram, who would of course become Abraham, fell on his face. And God talked with him. Abraham, the Bible says, fell on his face. And God talked with him. They said, well, God doesn't seem to be talking to me. Won't you try what Abraham tried? Maybe God wants us to get in a position of humility and of reverence. In Numbers 22, 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. Joshua is about to lead the nation of Israel across the Jordan. And meeting them across the Jordan is the great city of Jericho. And he's alone at night. And he sees a man and he's not sure who he is. He said, are you... In so many words, friend or foe? The voice came back, nay, but as captain of the hosts of the Lord. That's capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, the Jehovah God. As captain of the host of Jehovah God, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14 in the New Testament, if you will, please. The church at Corinth, Paul wrote the two letters to the church at Corinth. And the first one was really, it was pretty, uh, well, it was pretty straightforward. He was correcting issues in the church. He was correcting a moral issue in the church that had gone unchecked. He was correcting a division in the church. Uh, Groups said, well, our favorite's Paul. Some said, my favorite's Apollos. Some said, my favorite's Jesus. And uh, so forth. And there were factions in the church, and there was division. And in the letter, he calls them carnal. He calls them babies. You're a bunch of babies. Baby Christians, infant Christians, uh, uh, carnal, uh, fleshly, he calls them. And, uh, and, uh, and, and one of the things uh, was uh, the, the, the gift of tongues was being misused in 1 Corinthians 14. By the way, if you want to know uh, what the Bible uh, says about the gift of tongues, you can learn much from Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
and it'll clarify much of the confusion surrounding that subject that we see even today. 1 Corinthians 14 and the verses that, uh, that precede this teach us that tongues are assigned to those uh, that uh, for, to the unbeliever, not, not to the believer. Uh, it's not a bunch of believers getting together and, and I'm more spiritual than you. And No. Uh, uh, but, but it's uh, assigned to the unbelievers. And in Acts chapter 2, it was used to that end. And uh, there are 17 different nationalities specifically mentioned. And that's uh, uh, a multitude of languages that were represented in Jerusalem. When the Holy Ghost came down the day 3,000 got saved and baptized and joined the church, they could all hear in their own tongue. If you want to know what uh, tongues are in the Bible, read Acts chapter 2 and watch the Holy Spirit of God use the word language and the word tongues and the word language and the word tongues interchangeably. The Bible defines itself. The Bible teaches us that the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to communicate in a language you have not naturally acquired. That's the Bible definition. You can find that by studying Acts chapter 2. He gives some uh, other um, stipulations that this gift uh, of the Holy Spirit was, uh, again, for unbelievers. And it was not to be a matter of confusion. He says in that text, God is not the author of confusion. He said, if you are going to have uh, tongues used, he said, you need to interpret for those uh, uh, who will not understand. And he said, it needs to be two or three at most, and that by course one at a time, not a bunch of people jumping up like popcorn at the same time, talking over each other. This is all in the Bible. This is not my opinion. This is all Bible. And, uh, and then he says this, and this is what I want you to see in verse uh, 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church become together in one place, and all speak with tongues. In other words, it's chaos. Everybody's, everybody's speaking. And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that ye are mad? This, this crowd is nuts. Now, I'm not saying that's what the Bible says. That is going to be the response of an unlearned unbeliever. That's, that's what the Bible says. Verse 24. But if all prophesy... Prophesy is, is, a, is a, a proclamation of truth in, in, a, in, a, in this context in an understandable language. Someone gets up and everybody understands what they're saying. But if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, look at this, he is convinced of all. He is judged of all. There's dozens of scriptures in the Bible. I won't go through them just now. Where all God's people together said amen. God's people were responsive to the prophesying or the teaching or the preaching of the word of God. By the way, that's why you guys ought to say amen sometimes. Amen? amen. I said that's why you ought to say amen sometimes. Amen? amen. Like right now. Amen? <laughs> yeah. You say, well, what's important? God said this. If, if everybody comes to church and, and, the, and, the, and the song leader says, take your songbooks and you take your songbook and, and let's stand together and you stand and let's read together and you read and let's bow our heads and you bow your heads and pass us something good and you say, Amen. then an unbeliever is going to say, man alive, these people really believe what that man's saying. These people are all on the same page. But you go in a sleepy little church with no fire whatsoever, no Holy Spirit power, and the pastor says something, and everybody goes. And it's non-responsive. Then what's a, what's a visiting unbeliever going to say? Man, these people are plumb miserable in here. 
I don't know what that guy is saying up there, but whatever he's saying, they sure don't believe it. Amen. This is not what I said. This is what the Bible says. Right? So convinced of all. How many of you want to be a part of that all? All right, then. Participate. Amen? When it's time to sing, sing. Amen. When it's time to sing, sing. Amen. When it's good, say amen. amen. Yeah, that's Bible. So convinced of all. Now, what happens here? What happens when an unbeliever comes in a space and God, the Holy Spirit, is moving? There is perhaps a legitimate use of the gift of tongues. And the word of God is being spoken and prophesied. And he is convinced of all the atmosphere of the congregation. Everybody's on the same page. It's, uh, 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 it's not confusion. It's not madness. He is convinced of all. He is, he is judged of all. He says, man, alive, good night. Uh, man, I feel so convicted just being around folks like this. This. Now I love, these folks love God. All of the, and and, and that brings conviction. Verse 25. Here's what happens. The result. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest by the spoken word and the response of the people. And so falling down on his face. He will worship God. Amen. Amen. And report that God is in you of a truth. Amen. Hey, listen, hey, 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 listen, these are folks who in reverence come and fall on their face before the Lord. There are folks recorded here as the wise men who fell down to worship and adore. Turn to Matthew 26. Falling on one's face, I believe, is a position of reverence. But it can also be a a position of desperation and urgency, if you will. We find the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 26 and verse 39. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves the immediate proximity of his disciples and he went a little further. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This is supplication. This is earnest prayer. You might use the word desperation here. Certainly you would use the word fervency. Or urgency. By the way, if the Lord Jesus needed his father urgently, you think maybe you and I might need the father urgently? I think so. Now then, in Genesis 19, the Bible says in verse 27, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. So we have those who fell down and worship. We have those on their face before the Lord. And here we have an example of one who came to stand before the Lord. By the way, it was in this place, I believe, that he pled for the city of Sodom. Oh God, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare the city? God, would you spare it for 45, 40, 30, and so forth, all the way down to 10? Would you spare the city? He was interceding. He was standing. Standing before the Lord, I think, denotes respect. 
I've been in plenty of courtrooms. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what for, but, uh, <laughs> but I've been in courtrooms many times with people. And many times I've heard, as I'm sure many of you have, all rise. You don't have to rise just now. The Honorable Jason Hamilton presiding. Right? And what does everybody in the courtroom do? They rise. What is that? Respect. When we sing, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and broad stars through the perilous fight. For the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, doth that flag, star-spangled banner, Amen. yet wave or the land Glory. of the free and the home of the brave. What do we do? We stand Hallelujah. with reverential hand over heart. By the way, if you are free, bless God, you ought to stand out of gratitude for your freedom and those who paid the price for that. You say, well, I have a grievance. Well, don't take the spotlight that someone else purchased with blood and stand in it like you deserve it. Why? Well, I'm here. Why don't you sit when they, when they play um, whatever... Tiptoe through the tulips. Why don't you sit during the Why don't you sit? Because there's no spotlight there. That's why. But there is a spotlight where the national anthem plays. Why? Because that, that spotlight was purchased with blood. And you have no right to stand in the spotlight that somebody else bought. So stand up like you got some sense. And you young people listen to me in your public schools. If that happens in your classroom, bless God, you ought to leap off your feet. I said you ought to leap off your feet. Don't you be so cowardly that you would sit at a disrespect for the blood who purchased the freedom and maintained the freedom that God has given us. Amen. Amen. But we stand. With reverence, we stand. Abraham came and he stood before the Lord. Brother Kilby read it in Sunday school hour. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, God's people are facing a conglomerate army. Ammonites, Moabites, and others have joined them. And they're in desperation. And it's lovely. It says, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Do you know where every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night ought ought to find you? At church with your family. I didn't get too many amens on that one. I believe it with all my heart. You'll thrive. Three to thrive is what Lee Robertson used to say. But you ought to be in church on a regular basis with your family. And your kids ought to know what it is to sit, uh, stand in a pew or sit in a pew or a psalm book and hold a psalm book and sing the songs of Zion. Amen. Here they are and they need something from God and they stand in respect. And here they are standing in anticipation. And God delivered by the way. Amen. Standing is also denotes accountability. Leviticus 9, 5. And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. If you've ever received a summons, it said something like this. You must appear in court to stand trial for the charges against you. It's accountability. 
It's anticipation. It's respect. Let me give you a little suggestion. Sometime get up in the morning and go over to the window. Stand at attention. Look up toward the heavens and say, reporting for duty. And get your mind on the captain of the host of heaven. Amen. Amen. They stood before him. In Psalm 5, in verse 3, the psalmist said, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning. Will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. And will look up. You know what that denotes? Expectation. I had a little boy named Angel. He's about four years old. And I was in Bible college. He rode my bus. He was demon possessed. <laughs> he never missed. Why are the bad kids always the ones that are most faithful? <laughs> but I loved that little rascal. Forever calling him down for jumping over seats and every, every manner of thing. But he, boy, he wanted my attention. And every Sunday I got on the bus, it wouldn't be long, somebody stepping on my feet, pulling on my coat. Back then you could buy a little bag of chips for 25 cents. And the little trucks would pull up, you know, and, and uh, kids would cut their quarters and get their 25 cent bag of chips. And every Sunday, Butter John, Butter John, Butter John, give me quarter, give me quarter, give me quarter. I mean, as soon as I got on the bus, I looked down, there's those eyes. Give me a quarter. One day I was on the bus. I had a nice, I had gotten a nice wool overcoat. There's cold winters up there near Chicago. And I had a nice, and I, and I felt something pull on me, but that, did, that wasn't too abnormal. But I felt something pulling on it like this. And, and, then it, and then I felt, and I was like, I'm, yeah, kids, sit down over there. Get your lunch over here. Okay. And I said, what is that? I looked down, and the angel was pulling my buttons off one, on one, one by one off my coat. I just, one day I successfully navigated around him, and he was pulling on me, you know, give me quarter. He's looking up. Give me quarter. Give me quarter. Give me quarter. And one day I, I, I dodged him. I got in the seat, and I got my knees in the seat. And I'm giving instructions to somebody in the back. An angel crawled up on the back of the seat, grabbed both my ears and said, Brother John, give me quarter. <laughs> he got his quarter. We look up with expectation. In Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to come to pass, the Bible said then, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. How many realize Jesus is coming soon? We look up in expectation. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, the Bible says, then went King David in, and listen to it, sat before the Lord. To me, that speaks of fellowship. In his prayer, he says, Who am I, O Lord God? 
And what is my house, my household, my family, that thou hast brought me hitherto? David one day is just there in, in the palace and he's just, he's just thinking about the goodness of God. And he just sits down and he says, God, I don't know why you've been so good to me. Who am I? Who is my family? I don't deserve to be here. He just fellowshipping with the Lord. I heard a story. A man went to his pastor and he said, I, I just, I just, I try to pray. And he said, I just, I have so many things come to my mind and I just can't seem to focus when I pray. And I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like I have much of a prayer life. And the pastor talked to him a little bit about how prayer is a relationship and prayer is just fellowshipping with the Lord. And you talk to the Lord, he speaks to you. And he said, uh, do you have uh, any place where you can get alone where there's no distractions? He said, he said, our house is a busy place in and out. He said, no place at all. He said, well, he said, we have an attic. He said, let me give you an idea. He said, won't you get your two chairs and go up into the attic? He said, two chairs. He said, yep. He said, one for you and one for the Lord. And just go up there and talk to him. And that man developed a prayer life because that simple act allowed him to see that his relationship with the Savior was a personal one. That Jesus would love to sit and talk with you. And he sat before the Lord. David sat before the Lord. I find in Isaiah 38 a king on his deathbed. The Bible says that he was sick unto death. King Hezekiah. Isaiah the prophet came to him. God had spoken to Isaiah and given Isaiah a message for King Hezekiah. And his message was this. Thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. That was it. And Isaiah excused himself. Can you imagine? Hezekiah was stunned. No doubt the attendants in the room. Here's the king literally on his sick bed dying. And Hezekiah comes in and says, the Lord says, you're going to die. Get your, get your affairs in order. Get your house in order. You're going to die. You're not going to live. Can you imagine the attendance there? Hezekiah, evidently, very, very ill. The Bible says, then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. And prayed unto the Lord. And said, remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart. And have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Here's a man in a sick bed 
perhaps cannot get himself up, he's so sick. There's no private room to which he can escape. He can't go in the attic and sit before the Lord. He can't go on a mountaintop and stand before the Lord. He can't get on his knees. He can't fall before the Lord. He can't fall on his face before the Lord. So what did he do? To get whatever isolation he could, he simply turned his face to the wall and began to weep and cry out to the Lord. Isaiah is on his way out of the palace. And before he gets off the palace grounds, the Lord says, Isaiah, turn around. Go back. I got another message for the king. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, Hezekiah, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto unto thy days 15 years. He said, Pastor, what are you trying to tell us? Primarily this. Your relationship with God, your fellowship with God must become personal. He must become real to you. He is not an object you talk about. He is not a thing you talk at. He is a person He loves you. He desperately wants to fellowship with you. He laid down his life to demonstrate his love for you. And the fact you don't have time to give him the time of day, don't have time to spend some individual time with him, too busy doing what? Eating? Too busy doing what? Fixing something that broke? Too busy doing what? What are we doing that we don't have time for the Lord of glory? That we would not travel as did those wise men and fall before him in adoration and in worship. I'm saying, listen, I'm saying that there's a God in heaven and that God wants to fellowship with you. You can talk to the Lord, number one. He wants to hear from you. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He beckons us. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. He beckons us. Luke eleven thirteen. 13, If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give the Holy Spirit? And another uh, a writer of the New Testament said good things to them that ask. He's beckoning us. And my favorite Romans 8, He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things if God the Father would give us his son Jesus why wouldn't he give us every good thing that we need in our lives you have not because you ask not the Bible tells us get along with God get you a couple chairs in the attic and sit with the Lord for a while tell him how grateful you are how he's been so much better to you than you deserve go stand before him and look up in respect in reverence, fall before him, on your face before him, on your knees before him in desperation. Number one, you can talk to the Lord. Number two, the devil does not want you to talk to the Lord. And so our lives, filled with distractions, keep us from the most important thing we can do as a child of God. 
People rattled, rattled, rattled. Worried, worried, worried. Fretful, fretful, fretful. When the Lord said, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Charles Finney, arguably one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived, saw over a million souls saved. He was an attorney, he was a lawyer, and he was under conviction. And he'd read the Bible at his desk, and when someone would come in, he'd, he'd take his law books real quick and slide them over on top of the Bible because he was ashamed for anybody to see him reading the Scriptures. He became so under conviction, he was so miserable, convicted of his sin, and knowing that he needed to be saved. One day on his way to work, he was so convicted, and, 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 he, and he said, I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to get alone. And he, he went off the beaten path there to a place, and he knelt there just inside a wooded area and began to cry out to God. But he heard something, heard a noise, and he jumped up so self-conscious and, and afraid, and he went deeper into the woods. And, and again, the same thing happened several times until finally he found a, a secluded spot in the woods and began to pour out his heart to God and called upon Christ, and he was gloriously saved. He went to work and people knew immediately Charles Finney is one of those men. The, the fullness of, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit the moment we get saved. But the New Testament clearly teaches of a baptism of the Spirit and the fire of God and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's described in several ways. There is a fullness of God that you and I as a believer can enjoy. That there's a price to be paid, a yearning, a longing, a consecration that goes along, along with it. Some importunity, some continually begging that God wants to see from us knowing that we are trustworthy to be filled with his spirit that will use it not for our own selfish gain but for the advancement of his cause but Charles Finney wanted that and he was almost immediately filled with the Holy Spirit and people knew the transformation that had taken place in his life the devil doesn't want you to talk to the Lord he wants you to be embarrassed he wants you to be distracted he wants your mind to wander how many of you can testify pastor (laughs) I can't think of anything until I get on my knees to pray and then I can think of everything I should have done that I haven't done yet that's just the way that he does not want you in fellowship with the Lord. But last, I said, number one, you can talk to the Lord. He wants to hear from you. Number two, the devil doesn't want you to talk to the Lord. Number three, when you don't feel like talking to the Lord, let me challenge you. Get in a position of prayer. When you don't feel like praying, just go on and get in a position of prayer. He said, well, wouldn't that be disingenuous? No. Sit up straight, you'll make better grades. You may be as cocky as a rooster. But there's just something about getting here or getting here or getting here Sort of changes the way you think and feel. I'm not saying it's more spiritual to pray there than it is anywhere else. I'm just saying we don't fellowship with God like we ought to. And what we ought to do is intentionally get ourselves in a mindset, in a place of prayer and get on our knees and get on our face or go out somewhere and walk with the Lord. Sometimes I, I walk with the Lord. Sometimes in the woods I'll go out and pray. And when I'm walking with Him, sometimes I'll hold out my hand. And I'll hold His hand. And we walk together. He said, why would you do that? 
it just helps make it real to me. Sometimes I'll stand in the morning reporting for duty, sir. I'm not saying that makes you spiritual. I'm saying it makes God real. If you can't spend 5, 10, 15 minutes in fellowship with God and get you a chair and sit down and look over at the Lord and say, Good morning, Lord. My coffee was good this morning. Thank you. Talk to him about your day. Spend some time with him. He wants to hear from you. How many of you are saved? Say amen. amen. He wants to hear from you. He wants to meet your needs. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to clean you up. Are you happy being stinky? Are you happy being dirty? Child of God, are you happy with all the filth in your heart and mind and on your hands? You like living that way? He wants to clean you up. Maybe that's why you haven't got on your knees lately. When you don't feel like praying, get in a position of prayer. One of the most important things about prayer you ever learn is that you must approach God consciously. A conscious approach to God. I'm not going to ask for testimonies right here. How many of you ever had somebody speak to you? Okay. <laughs> you ever try this? Somebody's, uh, you talk to somebody and they're, uh huh, yeah, uh huh, uh huh. And you just say something outrageous, you know, peanut butter and bubble gum, uh huh, yeah, yeah. Why? Because you know their mind is a million miles away, right? Please don't raise your hand. I don't want to have do a bunch of marriage counseling this week, okay? <laughs> God doesn't need to be patronized. Amen? He wants fellowship. He wants intimacy. He wants us to open our heart to Him. He wants us to get things right. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to be real to us. Would you bow your heads, please?